congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a garden, and there is a tree, and there is a man coming out of the earth. No, it's not the scene of the first chapters of Genesis. This is the last Adam. This is the beginning of the new creation. This is the gospel of Easter Sunday. He is risen. And at the empty tomb, the sight and the words of the angel fill the women with amazement and with trembling and with astonishment. How can this be? But if the women are overwhelmed, the men are underwhelmed. Turn with me, if you can, to Mark chapter 16. Because Mark records repeatedly the incredulity of the disciples, the incredulity of the greatest leaders of the Christian church. Look at verse 11, Mark 16, 11. The women went and told the disciples, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Look at verse 13. After these things, he appeared to the, the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And look at verse 13. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And what finally happens, look at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So the disciples don't have a very good track record here. Why was it so hard for them to believe the truth of the resurrection? They had heard Jesus teaching it to them in so many words. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer all kinds of indignities. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. They had heard that. But they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that Jesus would be powerful enough to break the bonds of death and come back to life. You know what the problem was with the disciples? The problem was not in the first place a problem with understanding the resurrection. The problem goes far deeper. Because we cannot understand the truth and the significance of the resurrection unless we understand the truth and the significance of the cross. When we comprehend the full significance of what Christ accomplished on the cross, it is then that we understand the why of the resurrection. It is then that we understand what the scriptures portray as self-evident, that the resurrection necessarily follows the cross. The difference here is the difference between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is this. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit 
before a fall. The higher you try to reach up and exalt yourself, the lower you will fall, you will crash. And Peter and the rest of the disciples, they're still clinging to that useless theology of glory. That's why they don't get the cross. That's why they don't get the resurrection. Because the theology of the cross is the opposite. It's the opposite of everything that makes sinful, fallen man tick. The theology of the cross says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. See, they weren't understanding yet what later on Paul put so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. If you can just flip there for a moment to Philippians chapter 2. And verse 6. Philippians 2, 6. God did not, uh, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is the theology of the cross. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation must follow the humiliation. That is the way of the cross. And it is this necessary connection between the Messiah's humiliation and his exaltation that the psalmist faithfully holds on to in Psalm 22. Even in the midst of the most agonizing affliction, he steadfastly holds on to the sure knowledge that it is through suffering that God brings us to glory that the darkness of the night will give way to the light of day. That's what the psalm is telling us. And you can see it already in the musical notation which stands at the beginning of the psalm. You see that at the beginning of the psalm? To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Now, these psalm titles and these indications of melodies and tunes are not necessarily inspired, but they are very ancient and are generally viewed as reliable. We see that David chose the tune, the Doe of the Morning. How very appropriate for this psalm, which brings us through the darkest part of the night until the light of the dawn bursts upon the scene in verses 22 and following the verses of our text. Now we know that David, in the midst of the worst affliction of his life, held on to the hope of salvation and restoration. We, we read that in, the, in, the, in our text, the words of our text. But what about Jesus? Did he on the cross only take 
upon his lips the words of the first part of Psalm 22? Or was he identifying with the whole psalm, also the second part? And the answer to that question we find in Hebrews chapter 2. If you turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. And here in Hebrews 2.11 and 12, we see that the words of Psalm 22, verse 22, are put in the mouth of Christ. So Hebrews 2.11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here's the quote from our text, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, if you look at when the apostle quotes this, this verse from Psalm 22, he quotes it in what context? Well, look at verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's in the context of suffering. Look at verse 14. It's in the context of, look at the end of verse 14, it's in the context of death, of destroying the one who has the power of death. Verse 15, of delivering those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's in the context, verse 17, of being like his brother so that he can make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so... The Holy Spirit then tells us that Jesus identifies with all the words of Psalm 22, also the words in the second part, also the words in the exaltation part, the words that are our text this morning. But have you noticed as we read this, this second part of the psalm, how different it is from the first in terms of prophetic, prophetic clarity and, and detail? The first part was so detailed it seemed as though David was standing there at the cross and describing it as he saw it. But the second part is not a detailed description of the resurrection. So in our text, we don't have those clear details, prophetically speaking, of the future, but we have a more broader, general vision here. We have a, a glorious description of the consequences of the death and resurrection of our Lord. And that has to do with the character of prophecy. You can think of prophecy as, as great big mountain peaks. If you, if you look in the distance... You may see a mountain and then beside it another mountain. They look right next to each other. But as you walk towards them or drive towards them, you come to the first one, suddenly you realize that that other one is actually far beyond yet. You've got to travel a long way to the second one. And sometimes the most distant mountains are covered with clouds. And you can just see glimpses of them through the clouds. And that's the case in our text, that the first part is pretty clear, but, but what happens after the death, what happens at the resurrection is you can just see little bits of it sometimes through 
the clouds of the future. Well, that's, that's the case for David. That's the case for the God's people in the Old Testament. But we are standing on those mountain peaks that he just catches glimpses of. We hold in our hands the record of the finished work of Christ, our resurrected and living Savior. So we, we understand the words of Psalm 22 way better than David ever could have. We have that privilege. Now in David's case, God did in the end hear his cry and saved him from death. That's what he's recording in the first place. But the salvation here in Psalm 22 is much more than a personal salvation for David. The psalmist is glorifying God for his salvation in terms of the church, the the congregation, in terms of the people, the descendants of Jacob, but also in cosmic terms. He speaks about the ends of the earth in verse 27. He speaks about the kingship of God over all the nations in verse 28. And so, just like the first part of the psalm, The second part is prophetic. It is the great son of David, our Messiah, who is speaking here. So look at verse 22. What is the first glorious consequence of the resurrection? It is this, that the terrible aching loneliness, which is a built-in crushing characteristic of sin, that is now gone. You see, the first Adam, he broke relationship with God. He broke the relationship between husband and wife. He broke the relationship between brother and brother. He brought death into the world. And death, sin and death, drove him back into the dust, into the ground from which he had been taken. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he comes out of the ground. New life, restoration, healing. Where there were broken relationships, there is now communion. That means in the first place that there is profound and overflowing joy and gladness between man and God. For the For the human being who is in the first Adam, there is only one thing to do, and that is to run and hide from a holy God. But for those who are in the last Adam, there are shouts of praise. We can run to God. We can approach Him with boldness through that new and living way which He has opened up for us. Back to the Father. Where there, were, where there was a feeling of rejection, there is now rejoicing. And that restored communion between God and man is not something the psalmist imagines in an individualistic way, like me and God, we've got to figure it out now, but it's got nothing to do with other people. On the contrary, what does he say? I will declare, my, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You see, it's impossible to have restored communion with God and yet not have restored communion between brothers and sisters. John speaks about that, doesn't he, in his letters, in his epistles, in the New Testament. He says you can't love God and not love 
your brother. That's an impossibility. It's all or nothing. And so Jesus is restored to life. And he rejoices in restored communion between man and God. Between his God and his Father. And he shares that joy with all of the brethren and brethren or, or brothers in the scripture and still in the English language is broadly, generally uh, meaning men and women. So brothers and sisters. So, so what is the first step of declaring your name to my brothers? Well, what did we read in the, in the New Testament resurrection account? What was the, who were the first brethren to hear the gospel of the resurrection? It was the women. It was the women who heard it first. The first of the brethren to meet Jesus in person and worship him after his resurrection were the women. And that's important. Did Eve sin first? Yes, she did. And it is an indicator of the grace and mercy of God that he ordains that women be the first to experience the truth and the joy of the resurrection and the restoration and the reconciliation. while the men are still incredulous. We read in the Gospels that Jesus tells the women to say to the disciples, go tell my brothers. These are the guys that ran from him in the garden. These are the guys that abandoned him. These are the guys who are hard-hearted and incredulous. But Jesus has paid for all those sins too. And Jesus calls them his brothers. Before that, he called them friends. But now he calls them brothers. He says, I'm going to my God and your God, to my father and your father. And as he speaks that to the leaders of the church, he speaks it to all the men and women, all the brothers and sisters throughout history. You see, the consequence of the resurrection is restored fellowship. We have communion with God in Christ. We have communion with each other in Christ. Now, who are these brothers? Well, look at verse 23. It's not just people that kind of physically are part of the people of God, not just people that kind of have their name on a list. It is those who fear the Lord. It is those who have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God, those united to Christ by true faith. They are the brothers and the sisters. They are the new and the redeemed and the restored human race. When Jesus died, they died to sin. When Jesus rose, they rose with him to new life. His God is their God. His Father is their Father. His inheritance is their inheritance. An eternal, glorious kingdom of eternal life and light. Now, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, look at verse 24. He heard. He heard. He has heard when he cried to him. 
God has heard. Now, you remember the sermon from Good Friday, and it seemed like God didn't hear, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was just this silence. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 for a moment. Hebrews 5, 7. And this is what the apostle says in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How's that? How, how was he heard? Well, what did Jesus pray? He says, Lord, if it, Father, if it be your will, let this cup, cup pass from me. But not my will be done. Your will be done. That's what was heard. God said, yes, my will will be done. Because that was the problem, wasn't it? In the beginning with the first Adam. The first Adam said, God, not your will, my will. And look where that got us. And the last Adam says, Lord, no way, not my will, yours and yours alone, even if it kills me. And so he learned obedience. He was obedient unto death. And this theology of the cross is an offense to the sinner. It is counterintuitive to the sinner. But this undid the fall. Jesus obeyed no matter what. God's word, God's will is good, even if it kills me. And he was heard. God raised him from the dead. Life through death. When it comes to Christ, God did not despise or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. He worked salvation, not from death, but through death. We see that in verses 25 and following that after the psalmist speaks of sharing the joy of God's salvation with the church, the congregation, he moves on to speak of a, of a great feast to celebrate the sacrifice. You see that there in, in verse 25. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill my vows and the afflicted are going to eat and be satisfied and praise the Lord and the great congregation. What's going on here? Well, this is, this is temple language. Fulfilling your vows is temple language. The believers would bring a peace offering, and then they would actually eat part of the sacrifice in a fellowship meal, in a shalom meal, a peace meal in God's presence. And the Levites and the poor were invited to participate in the joy. And we think of also the, of the, of the Passover, another sacrifice, which the people of God would also participate in and eat. What does it mean? Well, it means that sin is dealt with. It means that all is well between God and the sinner. And that's what the psalmist is describing here. He says the poor will eat and be satisfied. This is a glorious fulfillment of that peace offering and that fellowship meal. We have that glorious fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we, we, we celebrate that the Lamb of God was sacrificed for our sins. And we sit down at the table in fellowship with God and with one another. And we eat the flesh 
and we drink the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And that fellowship meal, that celebration of salvation, it is held, look at verse 26, in the context of eternal life. May your hearts live forever. There's the end of verse 26. That's what we celebrate, isn't it? Every Lord's Supper, we celebrate eternal life. The sacrifice has been made. The debt has been paid. The Lamb of God died so that we could live. What does Jesus say in John 6? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. As in Adam all died, says the Scripture, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Your heart lives forever. The last Adam, says the Scripture, became a life-giving spirit. That's what we celebrate at that Lord's Supper meal. In verses 27, 28, as we go on in the text, we, we see that not only restored fellowship and restored life are consequences of the work of Jesus on the cross, but also restored kingship. You see, everything that Adam and Eve lost, everything they threw away, everything they destroyed, everything they ruined is now fixed. It's restored in Christ. The resurrection means that man is restored to his rightful place, ruling with God over the creation. You see, once again, the dynamic, the, the first Adam, grasped for glory, wanted to be God, wanted to sit on the throne of heaven, and fell into the dust of death. But the last Adam, obedient unto death, was raised and exalted and given a name which is above every other name. What does he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he has that authority, not just as God. He always had it as God. But he has it in his human nature as the last Adam. And so we see in Jesus that the restoration is even more glorious than the creation. Because in the creation, man was kind of a, a vice regent. But in the restoration, a man rules in heaven at God's right hand, sitting right now on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father. There is a man made from the earth, the dust of the earth is on the throne of heaven. And that new reality of a new mankind, forgiven, restored, regenerated in Christ, that good news needs to be told. It needs to go forth into all the world. It needs to take hold of every place and every time because every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is not a question of if. It is a question of when. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And if they confess now, and if they bow now, it will be for glory and for salvation and for joy. 
But woe unto those who wait too long, who wait to the day of judgment. Then they will confess and they will bow to their own judgment and condemnation. So what has to happen? We'll look at verse 29. Everybody has to hear it. All the, all the prosperous of the world and also all the, those who go down to the dust, the, who can barely keep themselves alive, the most poor. In other words, all mortals, the rich and the poor, the humble and the powerful. In the kingdom of God, the rich will exalt in their humiliation and the poor will exalt in their exaltation. But all of them will abandon what they're looking for in themselves and in sin and in the world, and all of them will find in Christ, in communion with Christ, in union with Christ, they will find their hope and their joy and their life. This is the supper, the feast of the Lamb, which is better than any food which can be imagined, a banquet more wonderful than all the riches of the world could possibly purchase. Now the prophet Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 25. Let's turn to Isaiah 25 for a second. In your Bibles. Isaiah 25 verse 6. And he gives this glorious description of this eternal feast. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see it there in Psalm 36 too. Psalm 36 verse 7. The psalmist says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And as we move on to verse 30 of our text, it's driven home to us that all must hear, that all must be called and invited to this glorious eternal feast. All, all people, rich and poor, all nations, all classes of men, and posterity too. In other words, throughout history, throughout the world, throughout the generations, the gospel must be proclaimed. Sinners must be called to Jesus. The gospel news never gets old. It never gets stale. It never gets out of date. Just like the Jews diligently taught the facts of salvation history to their children every day when they sat in their house, when they walked by the way, when they lay down, when they rose. So at every moment, in every way, in every place, to every type of person, the church is called to proclaim. 
the church is called to love, to tell the story of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Do you see that there in verse 30? Now, children, you know that when the Old Testament has the word Lord in all capital letters, that's because in the Hebrew we have the word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, the faithful covenant God. But look at verse 30 here. It's not in all capitals, is it? That's because the word is not Yahweh here. The word here is Adonai, which in the Greek in the New Testament is Kyrios. It is the name given to Jesus. When we say Lord Jesus, we're just saying in English what the Greek says, Kyrios Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And it shall be told of the Lord Jesus. It shall be told of Him to the coming generation. Now every Sunday is the day of resurrection. Every Sunday we celebrate and proclaim Christ our life. Every Lord's Supper we eat and are satisfied. We eat and we worship. We eat and we are assured that He has done it. That He has paid for sin. That He has taken away the guilt. That He has reconciled us to God. That He has made peace by the blood of His cross. That He has destroyed the power of death. And that has to be told. It has to be told to the coming generation. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. The whole world has to know. You ever have that when you have this piece of news, this piece of information which is just so awesome and just so amazing and so exciting and it's going to change everything for your family and you just can't wait to tell them. Maybe you were unemployed and you got a job or maybe you just got engaged and you can't wait to tell your family. Brothers and sisters, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to have that kind of desire to share driving us. We have to tell somebody. We've got to tell somebody. We've got to tell everybody. We've got to tell the nations. We've got to proclaim this. We've got to proclaim it to the rich and proclaim it to the poor and proclaim it to the children. And they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for he has done it. And if you understand even just a hundredth part of the gospel, then you can't keep quiet. You can't keep it to yourself. You've got to proclaim it that he has done it. What has he done? He has dealt with sin. Christ has dealt with death. Christ has undone the fall. Christ has brought us back to the Father. And how do we know? How can we be so sure? 
Well, look at the empty tomb. The empty tomb proclaims the gospel. He has done it. You know what the empty tomb means? Well, Peter tells us on the day of Pentecost, doesn't he? He says, you know what? Jesus died. He was buried. But death could not hold him. You know why? Because death had nothing on him. The wages of sin is death. So when the sinner's on the ground, death says, hey, that's mine. You stay here. You're a sinner. And you die and you stay dead. But you see, death can only hold on to sinners. No human being has ever gone to the grave and come out again to live forever. No human being except Jesus, because he has done it. Oh, yes, he has done it. What does Paul say? Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification. What does that mean? It means this, Jesus is living, walking proof that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if Jesus had not managed to pay for even just one sin of yours, if just one transgression remained as a debt outstanding, Jesus would still be dead and buried. But Jesus took all of your sin. He took them all to the cross. And your sins and my sins killed the Lord of glory. And he was buried. He was dead. But on Easter morning, he came out of the tomb. And by the resurrection of his son, God declared to the world, you are forgiven. You are free. You are righteous because he has done it. And so if the devil's rubbing your sin and your misery in your face, tell the devil to go to hell and say, he has done it. And if your old nature is grieving you and you're wondering, how can God put up with me? I keep falling. I keep sinning. I'm a miserable, wretched sinner. And if you're wondering if you're good enough for God, then look to Jesus because he has done it. He is risen. He lives. And we've been quoting that hymn a bunch of times, and can it be? And I want to end this sermon by quoting the last stanza. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Amen.